Chapter Five of *The Web of the Golden Spider*. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. *The Web of the Golden Spider* by Frederick Oren Bartlett. Chapter Five, in the dark. Wilson made his way into the hall and peered down the dark stairs. He listened. All was silent. A dozen perfectly simple accidents might have caused the sound the three had heard, and yet, although he had not made up his mind that the stranger's whole story was not the fabric of delirium, he had an uncomfortable feeling that someone really was below. Neither seeing nor hearing, he knew by some sixth sense that another human being stood within a few yards of him, waiting. Who that human being was, what he wished, what he was willing to venture, was a mystery. Sorez had spoken of the priest, the man who had stabbed him, but it seemed scarcely probable that after such an act as that a man would break into his victim's house, where the chances were that he was guarded, and make a second attempt. Then he recalled that Sorez was apparently living alone here, and that doubtless this was known to the mysterious priest. If the golden image were the object of his attack, truly it must have some extraordinary value outside its own intrinsic worth. If of solid gold, it could be worth but a few hundred dollars. It must, then, be of some value because of such power as it had exercised over the girl. There was not so much as a creak on the floor below and still his conviction remained that someone stood there gazing up as he was staring down. If only the house were lighted! To go back and get the candle would be to make a target of himself for anyone determined in his mission, but he must solve this mystery. The girl expected it of him, and he was ready to sacrifice his life rather than to stand poorly in her eyes. He paused at this thought. Until it came to him at that moment, in that form, he had not realized anything of the sort. He had not realized that she was any more to him now than she had ever been, yet she had impelled him to do an unusual thing from the first. Yes, he had done for her what he would have done for no other living woman. He had helped her out of the clutches of the law, he had been willing to strike down an officer if it had been necessary. He had broken into a house for her, and now he was willing to risk his life. The thought brought him joy. He smiled, standing there in the dark at the head of the stairs, that he had in life this new impulse, this new propelling force. Then he slid his foot forward and stepped down the first stair. He still had strongly that sense of being watched, but there was no movement below to indicate that this was anything more than a fancy. Not a sound came from the room he had just left. Evidently the girl was waiting breathlessly for his return. He must delay no longer. He moved on, planning to try the front door and then to examine the window by which he himself had entered. These were the only two possible entrances to the house. 
The other windows were beyond the reach of anyone without a ladder and were tightly boarded in addition. He found the front door fast locked. It had a patent lock, so that the chance of anyone having opened and closed it again was slight. He breathed more easily. Groping along the hallway, he was vividly reminded of the time a few hours past when the girl had placed her hand within his. It seemed to him that he now felt the warmth of it, thrilled to the velvet softness of it more than he had at the time. He was full of illusions, excited by all the unusual happenings, and now, as he felt his way along the dark passage, he could have sworn that her fingers still rested upon his. It made him restless to get back to her. He should not have left her behind alone and unprotected. It was very possible that this swoon of Sorez's was but a ruse. He must hurry on about his investigation. He descended to the lower floor and groped to the laundry. It was still dark. The earth would not be lighted for another hour. He neither heard nor saw anything here. But when he reached the window by which he himself had entered, but which he had closed behind him, he gave a start. It was wide open. It told him of another's presence in this house as plainly as if he had seen the person. There was, of course, one chance in a hundred that the intruder had become frightened and taken to his heels. Wilson turned back with fresh fear for the girl whom he had been forced to leave behind unprotected. If it was true, as the terrified Sorez had feared, that the priest, whoever this mysterious and unscrupulous person might be, had returned to the assault, there certainly was good cause to fear for the safety of the girl. A man so fanatically inspired as to be willing to commit murder for the sake of an idol must be half mad. The danger was that the girl, in the belief which quite evidently now possessed her, that this golden thing held the key to her father's whereabouts, might attempt to protect or conceal it. He stumbled up the dark stairs and fell flat against the door. It was closed. He tried the knob. The door was locked. For a moment Wilson could not believe. It was as though in a second he had found himself thrust utterly out of the house. His first suspicion flew to Sorez, but he put this from his mind instantly. There was no acting possible in that man's condition. He was too weak to get down the stairs. But this was no common thief who had done this, for a thief, once realizing a household is awakened, thinks of nothing further but flight. It must then be no other than the priest returned to the quest of his idol. Wilson threw his weight against the door, but this was no garden gate to give before such blows. At the end of a half-dozen attempts he paused, bruised and dizzy. It seemed impossible to force the bolt. Yet no sooner had he reached this conclusion than the necessity became compelling. The bolt must be forced. At such moments one's emotions are so intensified that, if there be any hidden passion, it is instantly brought to light. 
with the impelling need of reaching the girl's side, a frantic need out of proportion to any normal relationship between them, Wilson realized partly the instinct which had governed him from the moment he had first caught sight of her features in the rain. If at this stage it could not properly be called love, it was at least an obsessing passion with all love's attributes. As he paused there in blinding fury at being baffled by the senseless wooden door, he saw her as he had seen the faces between the stars, looking down at him tenderly and trustingly. A lump rose to his throat and his heart grew big within him. There was nothing now, no motive, no ambition, no influence, which could ever control him until after this new great need was satisfied. All this came over him in a flash, he saw as one sees an entire landscape by a single stroke of lightning. Then he faced the door once again. The simple accident of the muzzle of his revolver striking against the doorknob furnished Wilson the inspiration for his next attack. He examined the cylinder and found that four cartridges remained. These were all. Each of them was precious and would be doubly so once he was beyond this barrier. He thrust the muzzle of the revolver into the lock and fired. The bullet ripped and tore and splintered. Again he placed his shoulder on the door and pushed. It gave a little, but still held. He must sacrifice another cartridge. He shot again, and this time, as he threw his body full against the bolt, it gave. He fell in atop the debris, but instantly sprang to his feet and stumbled along the hall to the stairway. He mounted this three steps at a time. At the door to the study he was again checked. There was no light within, and no voice to greet him. He called her name. The ensuing silence was ghastly in its suggestiveness. He started through the door, but a slight rustling or creak caused him to dart back, and a knife in the hand of some unknown assailant missed him by a margin so slight that his sleeve was ripped from elbow to wrist. With cocked revolver, Wilson waited for the rush which he expected to follow immediately. Save that the curtains before him swayed slightly, there was nothing to show that he was not the only human being in the house. Sorez might still be within unconscious, but what of the girl? He called her name. There was no reply. He dashed through the curtains. For the sixteenth of a second, felt the sting of a heavy blow on his scalp, and then fell forward, the world swirling into a black pit at his feet. When Wilson came to himself, he realized that he was in some sort of vehicle. The morning light had come at last, a cold, luminous gray wash, scarcely yet of sufficient intensity to do more than outline the world. He attempted to rise, but fell back weakly. He felt his neck and the collar of the luxurious bathrobe he still wore to be wet. It was a sticky sort of dampness. He moved his hand up farther and found his hair to be matted. 
his fingers came in contact with raw flesh, causing him to draw them back quickly. The carriage jounced over the roadbed as though the horses were moving at a gallop. For a few moments he was unable to associate himself with the past at all. It was as though he had come upon himself in this situation as upon a stranger. The driver without the closed carriage seemed bent upon some definite enough errand, turning corners, galloping up this street and across that. He tried to make the fellow hear him, but above the rattling noise this was impossible. There seemed to be nothing to do but to lie there until the end of the journey wherever that might be. He lay back and tried to delve into the past. The first connecting link seemed years ago. He was running away from something, her hand within his. The girl, yes, he remembered now, but still very indistinctly. But soon, with a great influx of joy, he recalled that moment at the door when he had realized what she meant to him. Then the blind pounding at the door, then the run upstairs, and this. He struggled to his elbow. He must get back to her. How had he come here? Where was he being taken? He was not able to think very clearly, and so found it difficult to devise any plan of action, but the necessity drove him on as it had in the face of the locked door. He must stop the carriage, and... But even as he was exerting himself in a struggle to make himself heard, the horses slowed down, turned sharply, and trotted up a driveway to the entrance of a large stone building. Some sort of an attendant came out, exchanged a few words with the driver, and then, opening the door, looked in. He reached out his hand and groped for Wilson's pulse. "'Where am I?' asked Wilson. "'That's all right, old man,' replied the attendant in the paternal tone of those in lesser official positions. "'Able to walk, or shall I get a stretcher?' "'Walk? Of course I can walk. What I want to know is—' But already the strong arms were beneath his shoulders and half lifting him from the seat. "'Slowly, slowly now!' Wilson found himself in a corridor strong with the fumes of ether and carbolic acid. "'See here,' he expostulated. "'I didn't want to come here. I—where's the driver?' "'He went off as soon as you got out.' "'But where—' "'Come on. This is the city hospital, and you're hurt.' The quicker you get that scalp of yours sewed up, the better. For a few steps, Wilson walked along submissively, his brain still confused. The thought of her came once again, and he struggled free from the detaining arm and turned upon the attendant who was leading him to the accident room. "'I'm going back,' he declared. "'This is some conspiracy against the girl.' I'll find out what it is, and I'll—' "'The sooner you get that scalp fixed,' interrupted the attendant, "'the sooner you'll find the girl.' The details of the next hour were blurred to him. 
He remembered the arrival of the brisk young surgeon, remembered his irritated greeting at sight of him. "'Another drunken row, I suppose,' and the sharp fight he put up against taking ether. He had but one thought in mind. He must not lose consciousness, for he must get back to the girl. So he fought until two strong men came in and sat one on his chest and one on his knees. When he came out of this, he was nicely tucked in bed. They told him that probably he must stay there three or four days. There was danger of the wound growing septic. Wilson stared at the pretty nurse a moment and then asked, "'I beg your pardon? How long did you say?' Three days, anyway, and possibly longer. "'Not over three hours longer,' he replied. She smiled, but shook her head and moved away. It was broad daylight now. He felt on his head. It was done up in turban-like bandages. He looked around for his clothes. They were put away. The problem of getting out looked a difficult one but he must. He tried again to think back as to what had happened to him. Who had placed him in the carriage and given orders to the driver? Had it been done to get rid of him or out of kindness? Had it been done by the priest or by Sorez? Above all, what in the meanwhile had become of his comrade? When the visiting surgeon came in, Wilson told him quite simply that he must leave at once. "'Better stay, boy. A day here now may save you a month. "'A day here now might spoil my life. "'A day outside might cost it. "'I'm willing. "'Well, we can't hold you against your will. "'But think again. You've received an ugly blow there.' and it has left you weak." Wilson shook his head. "'I must get out of here at once, whatever the cost.' The surgeon indifferently signed the order for his release and moved on. The nurse brought his clothes. His only outside garment was the long, gold-embroidered lounging robe that he had thrown on while his own clothes were drying. He stared at it helplessly. Then he put it on. It did not matter. Nothing mattered but getting back to her as soon as possible. A few minutes later the citizens of Boston turned to smile at the sight of a young man with pale, drawn face hurrying through the streets, wearing a white linen turban and an oriental robe. He saw nothing of them. End of chapter 5 Recording by Roger Moline.